for the purposes of this piece, let's pretend that it is late September of 2017, three years before the time that I am speaking to you now. It was written while I was on a plane to California. So in order to give you something of the feel for that context, I'm going to go sit over there in a chair that feels a little more like an airplane seat. So once I'm in place, just go with me. Pretend I'm on a plane in 2017. Okay, let's go. I'm on a plane to California about, about to spend two weeks at a refuge for writers, a retreat for which I was nominated by a colleague who had himself been a resident as part of a fellowship for writers in the free thought community. Being selected for this wasn't just a surprise. Certainly, I went through all the thoughts of what an honor and what a wonderful opportunity, and, and they are very sincerely felt. But my dominant attitude is, oh dear, they've made a mistake. Wait, this isn't the usual imposter syndrome lament. Let me go at this sort of orthogonally. As I was preparing for this excursion, I figured I ought to get at least a couple of new shirts, some pairs of pants, since so many of the nicer items in my already spare wardrobe were looking worse for wear. As I poked around the men's section, haplessly, I found myself fixed to an idea of what a real writer is supposed to look and dress like. It wasn't a fully conscious thought, just something I became gradually aware that I was aiming for as I shopped. Despite the anxiety that this caused me, whatever that writerly image is or was, I'm fairly certain I did not achieve it. I'll come back to this in a bit. This retreat will take place in what appears to be a big, gorgeous house in a ridiculously picturesque part of Northern California, overlooking a fault line, I think. Apart from a couple of formal meet-and-greet meals from the proprietors, writers are otherwise left to themselves to work on whatever it is they're working on. When not writing or sleeping, we're encouraged to take advantage of the local restaurants, outdoor activities, and I think there's a tennis court. I'll be in residence with two other writers, selected, I assume, through different means, since my spot is specific to those writing about free thought and secularism. These two writers, my soon-to-be housemates, are very accomplished, particularly for their ages, as I suspect they're both a good deal younger than I am, perhaps by a decade, but that's just a guess. One is an award-winning novelist. The other is a journalist with bylines at prestigious outlets and publications, and me? Well, I've written a whole lot of press releases and email newsletters. I, I have a personal blog that more or less no one reads. I have a blog for work where I round up news stories and make dumb jokes, and that's Kind of it. And I'm going to be 40 soon. I'm 42 now. I mean, I also now host a podcast that's listened to by a few thousand people. Not anymore. So what am I doing here? On this plane? Heading for this gorgeous place and joining these amazing people? I'm not seeking validation. I mean, I usually am. But not here. Not, not for this. I actually do think I'm a pretty good writer, so my discomfort and foreboding aren't due to doubts about my skills. I suck at many, many things, but I'm pretty sure I can write. But I also know that I don't have the resume, the credentials. For the vast majority of my public writing, there are several layers separating me from the material. I'm writing in the voice of an institution, not my own. I'm rarely writing in the first person or from my own perspective at all but from the point of view of an organization or one of its leaders. 
Even were I to grant that my work was uncommonly exemplary, it wouldn't even begin to approach the prestige or cultural significance of what my fellow residents have achieved with their work. My predecessor for this fellowship, who nominated me to succeed him, is also incredibly accomplished. Holding a similar position to mine in his own organization, he has been a well-known and highly respected leader, not just in secularism, but in political advocacy in general. He's written books, academic articles, and he has had a leading role in the advancement of the cause for which he fights. He's not only qualified to be at a writer's retreat like this, he's overqualified and overdue for even greater honors. But hey, I'm kind of funny on Twitter. Okay, well, they knew all of this when I was nominated and selected, and they didn't hedge their invitation with anything like, well, you don't quite have the pedigree we normally look for in our residence, but your friends seem to think that you might be worth a shot. They were as warm and welcoming and excited about my arrival as they would be for anyone else. Or at least they made it seem so, which is almost the same thing. As a parent, I know all too well the emotional and psychological cost of feigning enthusiasm. Remember the clothes shopping? Half-consciously, I was focused on looking the part of what I think they think a real writer is supposed to be. I didn't want them to think of me as a weird outlier, an exception to their usual standards, just as I have always done as an unknowing autistic for all my life. I was aiming to pass. In attending this retreat, I'm entering a world that is both aspirational and alien to me. I've always wanted to be taken seriously as a writer, a thinker, a creator. I've been on the cold street, looking in through the window at that society of the humanities, the creative class, the intellectuals, feeling simultaneously compelled to become one of them and certain that I could never, ever truly belong. So I never stood close enough to that window to fog up the glass. Someone might have noticed me. In my mind, this is a world of people with deep, varied and rich life experiences, who have achieved greatness in their fields, who have been intellectually and creatively ahead of the curve since toddlerhood. And now they write think pieces and long form articles and nonfiction books and novels and poetry and are rewarded with respect, admiration, income, I, I assume, a place in a network of brilliant and thoughtful people seeking to learn from and collaborate with each other, invitations to speaking engagements, conference panels, NPR interviews, generous fellowships, and of course, retreats. The stereotype in my head gets richer still. They love nature and trekking about in it. They also love the city and its unrelenting stimuli. They love fancy and eclectic restaurants. They also love, really love dinner parties where they drink and laugh and eat exotic food and swap stories of their adventures and the many, many books they've read. I'm not one of these people whom I've mostly made up. I don't like dinner parties or almost any kind of party. I don't like exotic or unfamiliar food. Hell, I don't even really like eating at all. I wear silly t-shirts and ratty jeans. I read very slowly and I am averse to being outdoors. What with the sun and bodies of water and insects and all that. My education has been modest and not culturally rich, and both my acting and nonprofit communications careers have been fairly static, owing in large part to my own reticence to do what is necessary to advance socially and professionally. I'm an awkward little man with Asperger's. I am an awkward little man with Asperger's. And a lifetime of experience considering myself broken, failed from birth, 
only achieving what I have by dint of happenstance and people making exceptions for me. I am the sore thumb. I am the sore thumb. Humiliation is my default expectation. But here I am on this damn plane. Here I go, nonetheless, onto alien soil. My best hope would be to go there, to be there as me, unapologetically and perfectly content with myself as I am, without crossing the line into being ungenerous or unaccommodating. If I'm truly not like them, then so be it. They asked me to come, and this is who they get. It's not like I'm going to do any damage or hurt anyone's feelings. I just might not be the usual thing or what they expect. I want it to be okay to jut out a bit. Not like a sore thumb, but simply to stand out as a new face. The face of someone who thinks and acts a little differently and has something meaningful to offer. Someone who, if he's not liked or appreciated, is okay with that too. I suppose I'll find out if this is possible, at least to some meaningful degree. I'll enter that world in a few hours. I guess we'll see what things look like at the other side of a fortnight. Okay, now we have to jump forward a few days. We're still pretending it's 2017, but now it's early October, and I'm in Northern California at the writer's retreat. To help sell that illusion, I'll now send myself outside. See you there. Clearly, there is something I am not doing right. It's my third full day at the Writer's Refuge, and I am researching my article's topic. The muscles in my neck and shoulders simultaneously taut and compacted, such that I find my range of motion constrained. I'm in a veritable paradise, with astounding natural beauty, a sublime and comfortable writing environment, surrounded by books and supplies in various corners and nooks into which I can settle and work my craft, smart and friendly people who are both few in number and fully understanding of my need for solitude, but also interesting and enlightening when I do get into conversation with them. And I get two weeks to pursue this project in any way I please. Oh. And, and I'm right now looking at a different tectonic plate than the one on which I stand. Seriously, it's right there. Pretending. Also, deer aren't afraid of us, and they hang out, and they eat apples. Oh, and there's a hawk that flies around my part of the house, sometimes so close I can look it in the eye. And I'm lost. Whereas I had begun this retreat, with a lot of enthusiasm for this project and eagerness to get it going, I'm now overwhelmed by the breadth of the topic. Unsure of the degree of depth that is most appropriate, ignorant of the best practices for this kind of work, anxious about the unwise use of my time, and generally feeling beneath the task. I even think I broke the electric kettle in the kitchen. I did. I had turned it on, not realizing that there was no water in it. That was that. I am being treated with more privilege than billions of people will ever experience. And here I am, angsty. I know that there is no right way to go about this. That's really the point of this retreat, to give writers the space and time to take things at a pace and within a structure that suits the writers themselves. I'm so accustomed to stop and start time, specific formats and styles for particular written products and an established approval process that this freedom this liberation 
is bewildering. But now that I think about it, I suspect that what's really going on is very similar to the distinction I make between performing as an actor on stage in a play and giving a presentation on a real-world topic for my job. There is too much of me riding on it. Let's begin with the theater-slash-work presentation distinction. Upon learning of my autism Asperger's diagnosis, many people who know me from my theater life were in disbelief. How can I feel antisocial, afraid of human interaction, uncomfortable in crowds, and oversensitive to stimulation, and also thrive on stage? When I'm performing a role in a play, there's no question as to what I will talk about. My words are predetermined, and not just for what I will say, but when I will say it. The play will also have been blocked, meaning that where I am in space will have been set and rehearsed well in advance. Through the rehearsal process, it will be determined how I will say all these words, how I will conduct myself physically, and even how I will imagine my character to have reached those various decisions. There's always room for change, iteration, adjustment, and depending on the production, sometimes even improvisation. But the structure is always there, and it is firm. Most importantly, I am not me. I am someone else. Not literally, of course, but there are sufficient layers between me and the audience, and even between me and my fellow actors on stage, that the excruciating discomforts associated with my particular neurology are, if not wholly eliminated, sufficiently dampened. The role is a mask. But take me out of the world of the performing arts and into the world of speaking on behalf of an organization or a cause, and those layers are stripped away. If I am, for example, expected to talk about communications work, I know I will be utterly exposed. Not only can I not play a character, try as I might, but the real me must also lay bare whatever degree of expertise I have or claim to have. I'm Paul, and this is what I know. My words, my physical comportment, my inflection, my gestures, and even the very contents of my brain are open to public scrutiny. There is no mask. That is unbearable. So let's apply this basic idea to writing, and in a way, the dynamics flip with two different areas of my life producing opposite results. As I mentioned, my writing for work is routinized with established formats and processes. As with a public presentation, I am the one producing the words, but I am rarely writing them in my own voice. In a very real sense, when I write press releases, emails to supporters, newsletters, I am writing in the character of the institution I work for. I'm playing the role of my organization. My job title and the institution's logo, they are my masks. Those layers are sufficient once I am settled into the given employer's needs, processes, and importantly, its voice. Here at The Refuge, I'm attempting to write a long-form magazine article on a topic of great interest to me, but I'm not writing or reporting it in the voice of my institution, nor in the voice of a publication in which it will appear, as one might do with a straight news newspaper article. With this project, the speaker is me. The facts I present, the sources that I have chosen to mine, the people whose perspectives I've sought, the conversations and quotations that I've initiated, the things I've chosen to omit or gloss over, and the conclusions reached, they're all me, in my own voice. Whatever is wrong or unsatisfying, or weak about the final product 
is a reflection of me, with no mask to hide behind. That, I tell you, is dizzying. Now, one might then wonder, hey Paul, you seem to have no trouble opening every one of your precious little wounds and examining them in detail on this little blog of yours. Or in this pod video cast thing, whatever this is. Too true. Too true. And I'm not certain why the kind of work that I'm doing right now doesn't make me feel just as vulnerable, but I suspect it's because I'm rather sure of the topic at hand, that being myself. Even if I'm completely deluded about what is going on within my own morass of a psyche, there's no one else in existence who can claim a greater level of expertise or comparably intimate knowledge. There is relative safety in that. Whatever the reason, exposing my inner thoughts and struggles is far less perilous than claiming the authority to expound upon an external subject. So, perhaps a healthy approach, and even a more fruitful approach, is to lean into my own inclinations and preferences, and tackle the subject of this project through my own lens. In other words, rather than present facts and an argument impersonally, maybe I can chronicle my own experience of the subject as I absorb it, and recount for the reader my intellectual journey to better understand it. The cliché is that one ought to write what you know, but I really don't know much. Too true! So maybe the best thing to do is to write what I am coming to know of the project's subject and what it comes to mean to me personally. Okay, maybe I can do that. Let's get a few deep breaths in, let's take in the vast scene of nature around us and indulge in its otherworldly peacefulness. Let's let the brain soak up what it's learning and let the new information bounce off the thoughts and values that are already there. And then, let's write. And pay for the kettle I broke. They were very cool about the kettle.